Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Marianne Sullivan. And this is Jasmine Singer. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Jasmine's guest, Omawale Adewale, who is not only the founder of Black Veg Fest, a kickboxer, a boxer, but also the editor of the very recently published Brother Vegan, which brings together the stories of Black vegan men. I, I'm I'm excited about this interview. Yeah, you should be. It's, it was real. We could have spoken forever, and we both have a copy of this book, and we both love it. So I love chatting with Omawale, and I am so excited about sharing it with everyone today. And on this week's Flock bonus segment, I'll be continuing my conversation with him. As always, if you are a Flock member, you will get a link to the bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after this podcast episode goes up, or you can always find it on the Flock Facebook group. And if you're not a member of the Flock and you can afford it, you can join for $10 a month at ourhenhouse.org slash donate. And don't forget to join us for the first Flock Friday Zoom calls, which are once a month on the first Friday of the month at 4 p.m. Eastern or 8 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time, where we invite former podcast guests and we talk about our activism and we support our, uh, our each other really in, in becoming better advocates and also just dealing with any personal issues that are coming up regarding our activism or our veganism. So if you're a member of the Flock, check out the Flock Facebook group for updates or write to us at info at ourhenhouse.org. You can also set up one-on-ones with me as well. I've been enjoying doing those weekly, uh, getting to know some of you better. So if you want to discuss your activism or if you want to sort of have like a brain dump of some, some ideas for changing the world for animals and you need some support around that, you can set up a meeting with me by emailing Jen at jen at ourhenhouse.org. Yeah. And that, of course, is also for flock members. Yes, it is. And I just wanted to point out that by saying 8 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time, that we are not being, well, maybe we are being pretentious, but it really isn't meant to be pretentious. We actually do have people calling in from near and far Mm -hmm. all over the world. We do. We do. It's 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 a a feel-good time. And our July one is right around the corner. And I know that we have Cheryl Leahy as our guest for that. So no, really I didn't even know that. that. She, I knew we were, we yeah. were going to, to try to get her, but I didn't know that we had, we had pulled that off. That's great. I love her. Me too. She is the executive director of Animal Outlook, and she has been on the uh, Animal Law podcast and on our hen house in the past. Uh, she is a really great advocate, and I'm excited about chatting with her. It is summer. I think you and I both had to turn off our fans in order to record this. And you were yeah, like, so let's, go. let's get going. Let's move on. <laughs> but, you know, one of the best parts of summer that we are partaking in this year is barbecuing. And it is so fun to be able to do it as a vegan. I mean, it's so fun to be able to do everything as a vegan, but there's something about barbecuing that just feels like such a perfect exact replica of what people are doing except for ours does not involve the you know searing flesh of dead animals and uh, you know to put it mildly and i just love that it's it's so satisfying with all of these sort of like red sort of vegan meat burgers like these um hashtag hashtag bloody burgers or I, I meant to say air quotes and i said hashtag oh well i guess i'm my my non-millennial ways are showing but they sort of like bleed like real burgers except for they i mean there's no there's no real blood and i've been really enjoying having yeah, a burger no, having a good hot dog it does having add- a good uh, kebab it does add that feature. And, you know, vegan barbecuing has always been a thing. But, of course, you know, you, 
it takes a little bit more work than other bar- barbecuing because you have to cut the vegetables. You kind of have to have a recipe. I don't know. Which, but it's also definitely the best way to go because the vegetables are so, everything is better when cooked on a fire. But it is exciting to have like Beyond Burgers and Impossible Burgers and those to just do the standard barbecue thing, just throw it on the barbie, uh, as yeah. they say, uh, down under. But I also have this was... book that I've been using to do the uh, vegetables. Mm-hmm. And I did a vegan cauliflower the other day, which was really super easy. The book is called Grilling Vegan Style. It's been on my shelf for a while. Never used. It's by John Schlim. And I'm so excited I'm now using it. So the mm. the cauliflower, just, just with some olive oil so it doesn't get too dried out. And um, caraway seed. And actually the caraway, he had suggested, uh, what was it? paprika smoked paprika which is really good but i didn't happen to have and so i used caraway seed it was super good mm. i love yeah, cauliflower I love Slim. he was he was on our hen house like a hundred years ago or so yeah um, i do remember meeting him and seeing him and hanging out with him and i have no idea where it was i hate it when that happens i can picture it yeah it might have been like niagara or something like up up north because uh, I I sort of remember a Canadian uh, vibe. I feel like it was in yeah. the middle of the country. I feel like it was like Kansas oh, well, or something. Anyway, I was really look. <laughs> I was looking recently on VegNews.com, and there are uh, there there was this article I was reading because I was thinking about barbecuing so much, and I was like, I wonder what barbecue joints are vegan. And I there of course VegNews has an article on six of them, and I was looking. I was honestly just drooling over them. There's Southern Fried Vegan, which is in multiple locations in in California. There's Homegrown Smoker, which is in Portland. There's Brothers Barbecue, which isn't all vegan, but it has a significant amount of vegan options. There's Compton Vegan in Compton, California. BBQ for Life in Boise, Idaho. Um, There's Monk's Meats in Brooklyn. So these are, you've got your options. If, If barbecuing is on your mind... If I was near one of these places, I would definitely go. But it is lovely to be able to be barbecuing. As yeah, that's kind of exciting. I, I actually didn't know there were all those places. Mm. Like it, It's hard to believe if you're going to start a vegan restaurant that your first thought goes to barbecue. But I'm so glad that for so many mm-hmm. people it does. We've been doing this a long time. So th- let's talk about this GQ article because I, I, I found it kind of hilarious, to be honest. Well, I mean, it's a really, really good article, and this does relate to the barbecue issue uh, because it's about food, and it's called the. It's just, it's really, really good. It's a great article. It's so annoying. (laughs) Maybe I'm the only one who's annoyed. I don't know. The decadence of the new veganism. Sure, it's healthy, and yes, it's ethical. But as some of the country's most exciting young chefs are showing, vegan dining is suddenly becoming something way more surprising delicious. This is by this guy, Brett Martin, uh, and he lives in New Orleans. So he's focused on New Orleans chefs and they all sound amazing. A lot of them aren't vegan. They're just experimenting with vegan food, which is great. But as you could tell from the tone of that, like, what's that called? The deck, that little intro at the beginning of the article. He thinks that uh, we've all been eating crap for all these years, and and the real world just you know what this makes me think of. That this stuff can this be delicious. Makes me think of mansplaining, but it's like meat eater splaining or something. Totally, totally carnivore Yeah, that book, dude. That's why you're enjoying your meal right now. Uh yeah, no vegan food can so be delicious. Funny. Who knew? It is a great article to read because it does go 
through a lot of what these chefs are doing. And it sounds so, I, I want to go back to New Orleans because last time I was there mm-hmm. was a really long time ago and there wasn't much to eat. But it sounds like now there's loads and loads to eat. And he points out that most of these chefs, all of whom are now working in New Orleans, do not c- cook exclusively vegan food, nor are most of them vegan themselves. Mm-hmm. I think that gives him great joy. So he adds that that they have this new improbable vegan priority. Oh my god! Uh, deliciousness, An idiot. No, it's <laughs> like it's like that's such a funny um that's such a funny statement in an outlet as big as GQ because it's like obviously the person speaking had these hangups about vegan food because once upon a time. He had like you know a vegan chicken wing. I think you're being generous. Like, I think he probably of... never tried anything, and he just like went through the normal assumption that it was bad. Right. He threw all of veganism under the bus, and so and so it's oh my god, it's kind of making me like seethe a little bit. Even though I, also I mean, think it's it does. Funny it well. is true that the food is getting better and better, and it I sounds mean, like yeah, what the chefs but... are doing is amazing. But it's not okay. like none of us ever cared whether the food was delicious. But according to him, deliciousness has hardly been the dominant mode in the history of veganism, which has oh, long been thought of idiot. thought of by him uh, apparently as the diet of the self righteous and joylessly pious. <laughs> say vegan, close your eyes, and you're likely to see a tableau overwhelmingly brown of plate, filled with nut loaves and macrobiotic rice and white of skin. And I'm just going to add, this guy is also white of skin, but apparently he does. He's not taking on any of of the issues of whiteness. That's just for us vegans. I see. I see. That's hilarious. You know, I was curious about the borscht belt. I, I really hope that people understand what I'm talking about right now, but just in case they don't, the borscht belt is right around where we live in the Catskills. And it was sort of like Jewish vacation land in like the forties and fifties. And like, it was all of these resorts that um, people would go in the summer. My family went, you know, well before I was born, my family went and it was originally created like af- as a safe space for Jewish people to go in the summers and it was very sort of iconic. If you if you have ever seen Mrs. Maisel, then or the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, then you that's a resort in the Borscht Belt. So I was talking to a friend of mine, like whatever happened to all these resorts in the Borscht Belt, and uh, they're they're closed. I actually remember when I was a young a youngster, and I was at this performing arts camp every summer called Stage Door Manor in upstate New York, it was like the very end of some of the resorts and, and like some of the kids, including me, got to go sing at, at one of the resorts and I had a solo and I got to go. And it was like, everyone was like 95 years old. And it was, I felt like I was singing on Broadway and there were like maybe 12 people peppered in the audience. <laughs> I was like really giving it my all. But anyway, the reason I'm going on this yeah, tangent where, is because where I'm, are we? <laughs> I'm, I'm getting there. I'm what getting happened there. to this I was conversation? Up, I, I'm reliving Dirty Dancing as we speak. Yes, exactly. Dirty Dancing. Uh, first of all, I feel like watching that now. But second of all, because I saw that a one of the um, more f- well-known hotels in the Borscht Belt era was called the Vegetarian Hotel. And it was founded by a this Russian woman who had come here after the shirt, um, the that big fire, the Triangle Fire, the Triangle Fire. She started it, and I think it was vegan. Just the vegan was not a word yet. It seemed from the descriptions that it was vegan. 
And so anyway, I was like, that is so cool. So back to what you were talking about, like people were always doing this. And I'm sure the food was really good. People would not have gone to a resort in the Borscht Belt, even the 40s, if the food wasn't good. Yeah, this is a hilarious article to me. Like, oh, okay, you get it now. God, mine's with my brother. Did my brother write this article? Be honest. I'm going to read some more because it's just so annoying. This new veganism, he means like the New Orleans kind of veganism, is not angry and forbidding, but fun, fluid, inclusive. It's a spirit that feels particularly relevant to this moment of national post-traumatic stress. There is, to be sure, another veganism, or should I say, hashtag veganism, out there, one of yoga pants and spirulina smoothies and overhead Instagram shots of perfectly composed fruit bowls. The vegan discourse is fraught terrain, to say the least, filled with pointed fingers and conflicting orthodoxies and priorities, animal rights, indigenous rights, climate change, labor equity. Like, what's wrong with caring about them? You could tie yourself up (laughs) and not simply following the debate between tofu heads and anti-soy warriors. There's no way to make everybody happy, says the writer Alicia Kennedy, whose popular newsletter, never heard of her, often weighs into the thorniest thickets of the conversation. (laughs) As she recently wrote, nobody likes vegans except other vegans, though sometimes even that is debatable. Like... well, that's true. <laughs> there, is, there is a point there. I mean, yeah. there, is, there is truth there. <laughs> uh, but, but what it makes me think is that, like, the way we think of this is that we're winning, but they will never think that we're winning. They will think that they invented veganism. Like, they invented this new veganism. Yeah. We were going down the wrong direction all that time until until this guy entered into the scene. And then it became different, and it became good. And so he's all excited. And, you know, like I said in the beginning, this is a great article. It's very, very positive. Uh, so we have to be grateful for that. But don't any of you out there ever think that anybody's going to think that you won. <laughs> they, they will make it that you this, lost and they won. That's how people are. It does make it sound like, you know, New Orleans is the place to be. Like everybody needs to go to Lawrence cause, and read this article and go to all these these restaurants because they sound balls. I'm glad that this that this article by this uh, Karn yeah. Spinner exists. Just annoying. But it does make me think of this, this interview that I gave recently. It hasn't aired yet. So spoiler alert, but it's with Thomas Goodman who runs plant dining, which basically helps embolden people who care about animals to work with their restaurants, both nationally and locally, to get them to have more and more vegan options. And we were talking about this within the scope of activism and how quickly the the tide has turned as far as like restaurants far and wide having vegan options. And, you know, we were making these calls 15, 20 years ago. Like we were knocking on the door of cafes and, you know, it's not as simple as uh, therefore, therefore Burger King has impossible burger, but it's also not unrelated. We, we were doing that too before it was like suddenly a hashtag, you know? So yeah, there's no, like, we don't do this for credit and it's comical how little we get anyway. (laughs) Yeah, No, we're never going to get any, like they will continue to hate us. He also does talk about, uh, quote unquote, fake meat, which is what he calls it. He also calls it mm-hmm. lab meat, even though he's talking about plant-based things. And so he doesn't really even know the lingo because I think most people talking about lab meat are referring to cultured meat. Anyway, he's all for it. He's all right for it. He thinks that many vegans are skeptical of it. 
<laughs> so apparently we don't oh, like gosh. it. And this is who he quotes. Okay. As a Twitter user named Jazzy Pizzle, MD, put it, can you all stop eating plant-based things that look and taste like meat and just learn how to cook a vegetable damn? Shouldn't that be that damn vegetable? I don't know. Like, that's the source <laughs> he used to find out that we all hate uh, and we're all skeptical of, of, of quote-unquote lab meat. Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah. Okay, well, I'm I'm going to keep just doing my barbecuing with my bloody beet burgers. And uh, this guy could keep writing his articles as long as people are going to create and eat at vegan I just want us all to be prepared for the fact that it is entirely possible that we're going to win, but it is not in, even remotely possible that we're going to get any credit. <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. That's not why we're doing it. But uh, it is funny nonetheless. That is a funny article. Anyway, uh, let's talk to our, our guest today because A, it's a great interview and B, it's hot and I want to turn the fan back on. It's true. Omawale Adewale is an organizer with over 20 years of theoretical and practical application in enhancing egalitarian concepts and systems. He is the founder of Black VegFest and the co-founder of Grassroots Artist Movement a two-time kickboxing champion and boxing champion in New York, the author of An Introduction to Veganism and Agricultural Globalism, and most recently, the editor of Brother Vegan, which discusses the struggles, triumphs, and nuances of Black vegan men. And he will be joining Jasmine right after this. If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our hen house will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Welcome back to our hen house, Amawale. Hi, thank you for welcoming me back. I am so excited. I've been really <laughs> looking forward to this interview for so long. I I feel like I haven't seen you since that library. There was like an event maybe for the for New York Coalition for Healthy School Foods and yes. we were both in the library and that was a nice, that was right. right before COVID, I think. Right, right. And at the yeah, Healthy School Food definitely does uh, a lot of excellent work. It's an incredible, uh, you know, coalition. So it was great to see you there, too. Uh, a little surprising, but I shouldn't be surprised about that. <laughs> You're a good hugger. I mean, I'm just <laughs> saying that one of the things I'm looking forward to about, like, reentering society after a year plus of lockdown is somehow giving you a hug or getting a hug from you, I'll be real. <laughs> right. Uh, well, that's good to hear. Thank you. <laughs> so uh, let's start with this. I know that I'm recording you on video and our, our listeners are listening on audio, but you look like you're in this gorgeous oasis. And, and can you tell our, our listeners where you are right now? So I'm actually in the Catskills as, as well. I'm in Sullivan County, New York, and it's two and a half hours away from New York City. We're going to do some great work here. And I wish I could show you some some more of the, the of the scenery, at least for your for your guests. I, I won't be able to. So, but so is this like a space that you acquired for your advocacy efforts? Can you tell us a little bit more about like the context of where you are and why this is an important moment for you? Wow, thank you. Um, and I'm going to truncate a lot of this because um, this has been a long time coming. 
to be able to access you know, land and be able to grow your own food is something that a small, tiny percentage of the folks in New York in terms of acreage are able to do, you know, particularly Black, uh, the Black community, particularly uh, Black and vegan, you know, spaces where, and, and that's one of the things when we talk about culture, it's so important. If you think about how Chinese culture, you know, came into um, the U.S., and how difficult it was to kind of bring their food, you know, their cuisine, you know, and introduce it to the U.S. That that was work. There's actual, you know, history that discusses that. And so they, they had to feed themselves. And so it's very much the same thing as the Black community. And I think sometimes it's almost looked at as the Black community is this... Um, default where we can get resources and things from the black community and create but the black community cannot create for itself and so that was what makes it you know difficult for us to you know strive in a a number of ways for the majority but when we have access to you know to food access to you know it's the same thing in terms of what black vegetables is doing and this is what we want to do here and this is just more of a model where it is it's ongoing. It's it's full time. There's volunteers that are coming that are you know um, helping to to cultivate the land, to take the fruits and vegetables back into these cities or these rural areas where folks don't have access to you know to healthy fruit and vegetables and and, and at low cost. We can't all go to Whole Foods. You know Whole Foods may have great food, but if we can't afford it, then you know, what's the point of having it in our communities? You know, it could be in Harlem, but if it's too expensive for us to live there and eat the food, <laughs> then it's not really something that that's helpful to us. And I think this is just being consistent with, you know, with our culture and, and trying to, like, in, in veganism, we don't talk enough about Ital foods and that kind of dissimilarities between Ital food. We, we're talking about food that has no animal death, you know, attached to it. And so we want to bring those concepts to um, this liberation farm, you know, for you know, like a, a, so much of the Black community to learn about veganism, so much of the Black community to be able to um, decolonize the food, to understand and, and recognize that 60 to 80 percent of us, you know, are lactose intolerant. So it's poisonous for us to consume milk. And so they have to have a space where they could come in, be free, and also access, you know, the information about all this different plant-based, you know, foods and milks that are out here in, you know, in the world. And, but we want people to be comfortable. And so we created this space and it, it took some labor to do that, but we create this space and it's not with just, you know, cause I, I don't have money. <laughs> it's, it's collaborating with people, it's working with family and it's looking at, you know, upgraded ideas and liberation, you know, for humans and for animals, you know, can, can we do that? Is that something that, you know, we can do? And I think so. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. I can't believe we're both in the Catskills and I'm not sitting on that gorgeous deck with you. (laughs) But I'm so excited about everything you're talking about. And I have so many questions for you. Let's talk about Brother Vegan and then we'll get back to some of the broader efforts that that sort of fits into. You say in your introduction that Brother Vegan aims to create a set of core ideas of Black veganism. Can you tell us what some of those ideas are? Some of those core ideas in terms of what we've brought to veganism. What are we, you know, Know, what do we understand about Rastafarian culture? What do we understand, you know, about 
you know, the 50 years that some of these festivals have been around. There's an African arts festival that's located in Brooklyn, and it's happening in, in this July. And I urge everyone to check it out because they often do have vegan vendors that have been there for decades and well before I was I was vegan. So they need to have this history so people understand like, oh, okay, this is a great, you know, introduction. This is a great segue into this, you know, this new life, um, this understanding decolonization, you know, of food. So a lot of the foods also, when we talk about black veganism, we also have to talk about like the different ways and how we actually intersect veganism. So a lot of the community in, in the black community, how we come to this country, and we talk about 1619, what were we eating? We were eating the scraps. We were eating the leftovers, you know, from a lot of the white community, uh, particularly those who were more, you know, well off. So we were eating, you know, these slave givings and and they were called, you know, soul food. So through Black Veg Fest, we get that information. You get that in different classes. You have heard some of this information through your journey, but then you get it, you have it within a class. and it brings more purpose, you know, to you that, hey, oh, I'm not supposed to be, you know, eating this. Why? Because, you know, the heart disease is 30 percent, it's 30 percent more likely for us to have heart disease in the U.S. And some, so that's critical for us. That's also, um, this is, and, and, and what I hear is, you know, asking, like, why is there, you know, Black Veg Fest, you know, as, as, as well, for the same reasoning, when we're going out to different festivals, now all the festivals I think I've been to, you know, are, are great, but I see so many, you know, holes and, in, in, you know, because it doesn't speak to culture. And one example to, to talk about Ital or to talk about Rastafarian, other, you know, cultures is that where they're overlapping, like there's other issues that people, you know, other reasons that will compel people to be vegan, you know, animal rights but also health reasons. And if we're not, you know, necessarily just thinking, you know, climate change, just, you know, we want to change the view, the ecology, you know, of the, the, the plastic and the, and the, the, the wrappings, the, um, the packaging, all the garbage that comes in onto, you know, our planet. We'd rather not have that. So why not make a transition to something that is more familiar to our community, more something that is a lot more palatable, you know, for us. And it resonates. It resonates. And the reason why I found that it resonates for two things, people recognize, you know, Black veganism. First off, many of us didn't know there was this many Black vegans. <laughs> so, and I, and I didn't know, you know, my, myself and a lot of people who were looking to transition. And then as soon as we have a festival, it's like, oh, okay, well, this is what we need to be doing. Yeah, I need to transition all the way. I was trying, I was understanding some of this, but now I need to transition, you know, all the way. It's not a white thing. It's not just for a white community. It's not just for, you know, those who are, are well off. I don't have to have packaged goods if I don't want to, you know, but I also can. So there's so many questions and, and sometimes we just, we feel more comfortable and, uh, you know, we're speaking with, with, within our, within our culture. Yeah. Well, black veganism is the most exciting part of veganism to me. I, I, I just, and I think that there are so many 
problems with the fact that you didn't know that there were so many other black vegans right. and, and that, <laughs> and now it seems to be, you know, um, that finally there seems to be some, some light being shed on the fact that like, yeah, actually black vegans have been around for a very long time. Right. And, and there's a lot of black vegans and black veganism in general is something that needs to be, you know, centered within the scope of veganism. Can you talk a little bit about how black veganism for you connects to black liberation? Mm, oh, definitely. I feel one of the, the main things that, that people say when they're talking about liberation is land and, and bread, right? A place where you can call home and um, some access to food, things that you would need on a consistent basis. And these are things that even outside of veganism, people talk about liberation, they want land and they want bread. That's a perfect segue you know, opportunity for us to have a conversation for the vegan community, for animal rights activists to have a conversation about, you know, a broader understanding of what liberation looks like. Because if we're talking about land and bread, let's discuss how, you know, land and bread is how we 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 talk about agriculture. When we're talking about agriculture, we're talking about where do we actually, you know, grow the food and where do we harvest? Where do we harvest and what do we harvest? And what do we harvest? And I think that conversation would be so critical because it, it just all seems like they line up. We're talking about liberation, you know, for animals, right? And that's a key point that I've been putting in my in my life ever since 2013. I thought I was doing that in 1997, but I was still consuming dairy, right? When I went when mm-hmm. I went vegan. When I went vegetarian, but 2012, 2013, I'm thinking, you know what? I'm definitely was I'm not doing enough, and obviously I'm able to, you know, continue to live, and and I'm not even eating any animal products. I'm not even eating milk at the time, and I'm not eating, you know, animal flesh, and so that told me, you know, as a fighter, that oh my goodness, you know, I clearly can live, and so it made sense to start talking about, you know, this concept, but I've been, you know, talking about, you know, black liberation and the importance of, you know, eating well, and that just expanded this egalitarian, you know, concept. And it's basically not trying to contribute harm, not trying to contribute harm to our community, you know, to, to animals. And then also, you know, trying to be in the best space that's possible. I think when we talk about, you know, liberation for animals and you're talking about black liberation, why don't they cross paths? Uh, why wouldn't they cross paths? And, and they come up so easily because when we're talking about what's happened in, in, in India, you know, this year, 300 million, you know, protesters protesting the genetically uh, modification of organisms, of different products, and this is Western products, right? So it's tough for us to deal with, you know, uh, we say veganism, so it's tough. You can't go into India and just talk about what's happening with, you know, with with the animals and and totally ignore what's happening to the people that are forced to use animals and forced to give up their land at the exact same time. So I would want people to, you know, to do more research on that. And so it, it, it's almost 
it would be hypocritical to work on one issue and not understand the other. And it's not that people have to necessarily work on both issues, but they need to be able to understand uh, why it's not why not liberation for everyone. Totally. Yeah. And speaking of which, well, as we all know, the the pandemic had a particularly devastating impact on Black communities. And at the same time, the protests and conversations after the death of George Floyd are some of the most notable events in anti-racism we have seen in a long time. So all of these things were happening. And though I'm sure that your book was well underway by the time the pandemic hit, And by the time George Floyd was killed, you somehow managed to include both of the events in some of the essays. Can you talk about these events in the context of Black veganism? Well, there's two things that had to happen. And I think one experience and an event kind of summarizes, you know, uh, our passion for Black liberation and the plight uh, and and working on the plight of animals. It was June 19th, of course. Juneteenth, well, we heard prior to Juneteenth that the the, the past uh, president was going to, you know, make his way and start his campaign on Juneteenth. And so people know, you know, Juneteenth was the year that, you know, Texas finally ended slavery at 1865. Now, officially for, for the U.S., it was supposed to have been ended at 1863, but, you know, those former slaves did not know. And so that's so soon Juneteenth is a commemoration of slaves being freed in, in Texas in 1863. Uh, and, and June 19th marks that date. Right. So you would know that if you were president <laughs> and, and you would know how harsh you are in terms of what just took place. Now, George Floyd had just been murdered, you know, on we say on, I'll say on television, essentially, because it was broadcast throughout the world. And we all got to see how, you know, what much of the world does not see. You don't see it daily. You don't see it often. And you do not see it on camera. It's not something that is shown on camera. And people will feel that it does not exist. However, it does. So we took it upon ourselves to say, we're going to Tulsa, Oklahoma. Now, so Tulsa, he was going to Tulsa, Oklahoma. Now, Tulsa, Oklahoma has its own history. In 1921, it was the first place that was bombed in the U.S. and it was bombed on a black community that was thriving, was doing well. So anywhere we're we doing well with any amount of resource, because, you know, and, and there's been so many um, travesties throughout this, you know, the nation, we'll call it, we'll call them race riots, but they're not a race riot. It was us really, you know, try not to be killed. And and you had bombers, they had fire, uh, they had um, air pilots, you know, bombing us, uh, shooting. Uh, so you had about 300 people murdered that day in, in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And this year is, you know, of course, an, an anniversary for the Tulsa, Oklahoma uh, bombing. And so that was what people would also call Black Wall Street. So it's pretty well known throughout the Black community how quintessential this place was. We called it Black Wall Street because it was thriving by itself and uh, it kept the resources inside. So so I wanted to give you that history, you know, first. And so this past president was looking to go in into Tulsa, Oklahoma and just cause more heartbreak. I had a man on camera. I videoed a man on camera who was an elder, and he was 
very young during the time, a little after. Uh, he, he wasn't as young, but he had missed just a generation, some years. And he was just sobbing about having that story. And he wasn't the only one. And people was just, you know, bringing so much, you know, rich you know, history to that. So we had the idea, but also people in our community also had the same idea. We need to make sure that we celebrate Juneteenth and we bring enough people to protest him coming. He later decided to come the next day. And but when, when Black Vets Fest came, we also came with information about veganism. And so and, and it's you can't just come and just bring food. We had to bring, you know, solidarity. We're bringing, you know, black solidarity, you know, for our community. What do you need? And so that's how we communicate. What are the things that, you know, we can help with? And this is what organizers do. We'll contact, you know, that city or that state. We want to work with folks. And we did, when we came up with Black Veg Fest, we contacted the vegan, contacted vegan festivals. And we got so much, you know, support from, you know, a lot of the organizers. And so this is the same, you know, in the same way, we wanted to make sure that, we married those causes because we want folks to have better health. And anytime that we can get that information, you know, about, you know, black liberation and ending, you know, factory farming and, and getting dairy out, you know, we're going to put that information out consistently. And so many people came and, 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 they, and they supported our, t- you know, supported our table. We gave out free vegan food and water. A number of different uh, vegan sponsors were very helpful with that journey. So that was organizing that had to happen in one week. We had to move really quickly and we had to, you know, fly there and then, you know, come back, you know, stay there, you know, for a while, meet with the organizers and do that kind of work. And that was the first, first time I went to, I ever traveled to Tulsa, Oklahoma. So it was a great experience. And I also happened to, I felt so warm and and so great, you know, and I, you know, I made sure that I, that also proposed to, you know, Nadia, you know, on, uh, on Juneteenth. So it uh, was a, uh, it was a special moment. It was great to, to bring those, those causes together. Like, this is my life. I, you know, I, you know, I, I love it. I love being able to organize and, and work with other folks, you know, to the final solutions. And so I hope that, you know, Connie embodies some of, the, uh, some of the work cause we didn't just do, and, and that was for George Floyd, but we had so many protests here in New York City, just in New York, just in New York City. I mean, I moved up here in, in, in November, but all through 2020, it was just so difficult battling, you know, so much, but making sure we're out there. And then we still had to have Black Veg Fest in summer. Uh, and so we did it 2020, but we made sure we didn't tell people the location until the day of. But they already knew that we were going to do something. And then we had 200 people come out. We didn't want to have too many. We had social distancing happening. We had masks. We gave out, you know, face scars, uh, hand sanitizers, uh, you know, uh, soap. And, 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 and this is a great team. Just, you know, the, the team, the volunteers that came, we're all volunteers. But, uh, you know, our core group and the volunteers that help us with it, with events, you know, they come out and, and, they, and they support. And, one, I'm, and I will say I, I'm glad that. A lot of white allies, you know, did step up. That's just a consistent, that needs to be a consistent thing because every single day I'm black and vegan, you know, every single day I'm working on that. And and I'm not just attacking, you know, and being on the offense. I'm also defending myself. And if I'm defending myself every single time, I'm going to need, you know, um, you know, you know, I'm going to need other white folks to speak to, you know, other white folks, Right. 
And that's just the way how uh, we move, we center, you know, the Black trans uh, and within our community, queer folks within our community, because we feel like, listen, those who are more marginalized need more support. And that's simple. And it's a simple concept. It might not necessarily be easy all the time, but it's a simple concept to just to, to show up for folks who are more more mar- marginalized. And I think that that's what we do when we when we support animals at the very same time. Well, you brought up animals. I mean, I'd love to talk about that a little bit more because I know that your concern for animals was the thing that tipped you into veganism. So where did that come from? Like, what what was the root of that? I personally, you know, I don't think I've been the best to animals. Um, I think I love cats, but I also think, and I think this is <laughs> it becomes controversial in the vegan community, right? And and I, when we when we <laughs> when we have companions, when we have our companions. Or friends or family, cats and, and dogs in, in the home. You know, I had dogs and I also had cats, but I don't think I was as responsive to their needs. But also, I think that I lived in, in the city, in Brooklyn. I did grow up in a home, but, you know, I mean, the homes in in, in New York, you know, was very small. <laughs> Houses in New York are very small in terms of, you know, land-wise than anywhere else. And so I could not manage them there. And, and it also... It, who gets to say when this cat wants to go out or when they want to do this or when the dog's able to go? And so I'm right now, we just uh, rescued uh, Heathcliff, one of uh, awesome, uh, awesome cats, and we rescued Sheba just two months ago. And one, is, one, one was uh, nine months, uh, Heathcliff was nine months, and Sheba was a year old. And that concept, it, it was very important. I've always always loved cats. I think a lot of people know me know I love cats. <laughs> so and so I'm always trying to communicate, you know, uh, with them and understand. And, and Heathcliff really talks so much, right? And and I'm still not <laughs> not clear on everything. But, <laughs> right, <laughs> so right. annoying that we don't know what they're saying. And uh, when I think about farm animals. And how how often, you know, I went to, you know, on different trips and school trips and didn't really see this travesty that was happening. Right. And it, especially when it comes to dairy cows that I didn't need. I really was a person was I had to have my milk. I saw it in movies. You drink it. I saw it in commercials. You drink it. You get strong. Who knew that that was all lies? That's the that's part of the decolonization, you know, uh, process as, as well. It was doing harm to me, and I'm doing harm to other animals and perpetuating this business. So now, when I look at that, I look at and I personalize it, and I bring that, I give that information, you know, to other folks. Like I didn't need to, you know, consume dairy, and then going to different animal sanctuaries really helped me out you know, quite a bit. I went to an, uh, uh, Atlanta's Animal Sanctuary in 2014 and uh, great experience. I learned to really understand how animal sanctuaries are so important uh, to the movement because they they, they prov- provide this, you know, oasis, you know, not just for the animal, but for the humans to, to learn. There's so much work that has to be done, but it's so, it's necessary work. And I think with more people, I think with a, a, a lot more people coming into the movement, for whatever reason, they are going to be vegan. I don't care if folks come into the movement and they don't do it necessarily for the animals. I believe two things happens when you when you go vegan. I think that you get a higher sense of consciousness and, and compassion, and you you want to look and do more research. 
And so when I went vegetarian, it was for 20 years and I kept making, you know, these, these, these changes and, you know, uh, got hold of, you know, uh, vegans got hold of me. And then I was able to make that, you know, that transition into going vegan. And I probably would have not done that had I not, you know, started when I was very young, you know, with that process and already chipping away at the false information that's out there. So I think that my purpose might be, you know, for animals. However, I welcome anyone, you know, into veganism, regardless of how you intersect. I, I think there's so many reasons, but I don't, I just, the only thing is you can't stop at veganism. You can't stop at veganism. We have to decolonize, you know, the food, uh, the different, different cultures, um, the land that's taken, that's stolen away, um, the water that's taken away from different communities. Also, um, the land, the 80% of the land that's being utilized just to, you know, to slaughter animals or, or to, to grow food. You know, um, that is for the animals to, to, to essentially, you know, grow them so that they can feed us. That is the first world concept. That is a, also an imperialist concept. That is the concept with that we're going to take land from other countries and feed other folks just so we can make money. And I think that is where you don't stop at veganism and at doing it for the, you know, doing it, you know, for the animals. Because at, at the end of the day, we're communicating with humans so that we can change their mindset, right? And so bring the best properties of solutions, bring the best solutions. What's the best way that I can change this person's mind? And guess what? There's, there's so much information. It's never forcing, forcing, you know, forcing to me is, you know, dairy being mandated, you know, for the schools in the U S um, that's forcing, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, there's there's definitely like a thousand inroads to going vegan and um, it, it all benefits the animals, regardless of whether that's the driving force. You know, f- for me, that was it was like a blend of that and also my feminism, you know, and, and then why I stopped there. I was working in LGBTQ rights and then it be, kind of became encompassing of that. And I was working in anti-racism and it became encompassing of that. And then suddenly you have like this you know, sort of broad scope of why we're vegan. But in the center of it is, of course, the animals, since they're the ones most directly impacted by the system that is reliant on the exploitation of and commodification of their bodies. Um, but then, like you keep saying, there is also commodification and exploitation of a lot of other bodies in the process. So with that knowledge, how do we show up in non-vegan communities and advocate for veganism in a way that does not put people off? I think that's great. I think it's a great question. As some of the work that I've been trying to tackle for a long time, in 2014, uh, in April, I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, Lisa Shapiro, but she was a great, you know, beacon. And what I really loved about uh, Lisa Shapiro, she she did a lot of work with Tofurky, but even outside of that, she's very helpful with different animal sanctuaries and individuals and she supported my work knew that my you know that my work so a lot of times when people see you know they see black they feel like that's the radicalization you know of you know african-americans even when they see you know black hair is like you know radicalization you know of african-americans and she shouldn't get a people shouldn't get a pat on the back 
for warming up and, you know, and, and supporting that. But I think she does because I think she went, you know, beyond that. Right. So and I bring up because when I was starting my parties in 2014, you know, she she helped me in terms of getting resources. You know, I didn't there wasn't so much potlucks that I was doing. It, it was, you know, well, let me, you know, I'm going to prepare some food and then uh, it would be great to get, you know, some, you know, some sponsors, some folks to donate, you know, for this free event. So we want to do a free vegan event. And we did this in, this is Lower East Side in Manhattan. It was the first one. And great turnout, beautiful space. And I said that, you know, we weren't going to talk much. I was going to give people a preface, a little bit about the event, the purpose of it, you know, what's veganism, answer some questions, but really let the food, you know, speak for itself. And that's because we're at a new level where the food, you know, vegan food is a whole lot better than it was 20 years ago, you know? Sure is. <laughs> <laughs> remember remember the, the, the dark days of vegan cheese? I remember them well. Right. I, I, I mean, for me, I, I wasn't even trying any of that cheese. And I think when I first started, I said, I'm not going to have, you know, <laughs> good, good call. <laughs> right. Uh, but the food was, it's so much better. We have so much information. The recipes are so, you know, and it's, and, and I truly believe anyone can do this because people should post, you know, I mean, and I talk to my kids, uh, my youngest is 11, uh, 11 and 13 and, and 19. And it's about, you need to be able to prepare food. You need to be able to prepare your food. It's something that everybody, I don't, it's not specific to any gender or, you know, or sex. People need to be able to prepare their food. And we're hearing and we're learning, you know, so much. And we have, we have YouTube. So this vegan, you know, uh, you know, party, rooftop party that we had, it really helped people to make this, you know, this easier transition and little bits and pieces get these concepts, you know, like what are animals going through? Like, I just feel like they're just being, they're being milked, you know, okay. You know, this dairy cow is, you know, is being milked. You know, I saw this in school and they're not being harmed. And, but we go through that process. We, we give them that information. I'd rather give this information to people, the ugly parts then and how we take, take cows. We take their, we take their bones one place and we take their milk and in, in another, and then, you know, in their flesh and in, in another, in their skin and in, in, in a whole nother, you know, space. And we give people that, inf- you give people that information, but the event is not centered, you know, on that information because maybe you're not going to get all of this, but you'll get, you know, little bits and, and pieces here. And so we might do that for 30 minutes, the, the three hours that we're there. But we really just, you know, we're listening to music and we're eating vegan food. And then so many people, as the events go by, it's like, oh, this is good. Such and such is good. And, and we really tell people, please make sure your food is good. Because... <laughs> Because you're organizing people at this, you're helping to organize people. That's like the only chance you've got. Like, if people are going to be at an event and eating crappy food, that they won't come back. They won't even be open to it. Like, we have to win people over with their right. taste buds for sure. That's just that's really the thing. And then, and then vegan and and the, and the festivals is as as well. I think the festivals are really the gateway, and that's the gate. That's the, that's the gateway drug, you know, for for non vegans. Because once they get the food, I know you're going to eat food there you're going to love. And it's important. And, and I'm glad that a lot of festivals, like 
you know, we, we want those who have great food or who have responsive. Their customer service is excellent. You know, how we speaking to people, how, you know, how we, how we respond. We want to put that in because we're building community. You build mm-hmm. community, you know, with folks. You tell people about these issues, you know. Uh, and of course, we're going to have a lot of differences and a lot of. And, and I had to make that clear to folks that like we are creating a black space. You know, we want to create a black space where it's centered. You know, some of our spaces, you know, like Black Veg Fest, is open to everyone, but it's centered on black issues. When I went to other festivals, of course, I was speaking at a lot of these festivals since you know 2013. So that's a you know, five years before, you know, the first Black Vets Fest. So I was just getting a lot of intel, a lot of information and and through this entire process, but learning and and watching that, you know, I see why people thought, you know, veganism was white, you know, the speakers are white and who's organizing, you know, to to have the folks speak, you know, the, the speakers are mostly white. So now, and I won't go into the whole, you know, <laughs> the piece because I really could, you know, uh, bring up so many different veg fests, right? And this is throughout the world. I'm speaking it, you know, uh, not just around in, in New York, not just in, the, you know, within the country, but in some parts in, in different countries as, as well. But I'll bring one example in New York. So New York is mostly, you know, people of color, you know, in, in New York City, mostly people of color. Why would there be a festival that has me as the only black you know person speaking there and then why would there only be maybe two people of color out of 40 something people speaking that's the problem with with vestfest or with veganism and so if you have to see that as a problem to be able to go ahead and and solve it and so we can so we solve these things with kid hands with kid gloves you know on and explaining, you know, to them very transparently, very unapologetically, you know, that you are the organizer of these festivals. You can get, you have to do the research to find out who are these other speakers, the locations that you choose, the marketing material and where you actually market is all based on the organizer. You are going to say like what music you have, you know, you're there, how you mixing up. And then also the biggest part was the vendors, not seeing black vendors. So with Black Veg Fest, so if you were starting a, a black festival or any, I'll, I'll say, I'll keep it at, you know, a black festival, you might think, oh my goodness, how am I going to get people? I mean, how am I going to get, you know, any black vendors? Black vendors are not going to show up because I kid you not, there's hardly any black vendors before, you know, uh, Black Veg Fest, before, you know, Vegan Soul Fest, and even, you know, before, prior to 2018, hardly any. And I went out to a lot of these festivals. There weren't a lot of black people at the festivals. But Black Veg Fest, we started having people, and we had vendors sign up immediately. So we knew right then and there, they, did, they weren't comfortable. They didn't see their culture, you know, um, there. They didn't feel like their food would be, you know, would be eaten. Little did they know that their food was palatable for anybody, for any of the folks who were, you know, were looking. But oftentimes, not everyone, but in the black community, you have so many, you know, folks who have this amount of resources and you don't have enough to actually invest it. So if you're going to invest, you have to make sure, like, I I have to make sure I'm actually going to sell. You know, but if you know that, well, my food, I know black folks are going to eat up my food. So they signed up immediately. If you see the numbers, the, the vendors that we had versus, you know, other vendors, 
just on the East Coast in terms of uh, vegan festivals, we did a lot of these calculations. You'll be able to see that first our festival had over 80%, was 80% black. We don't say that they're just going to be black vendors. However, we send to black vendors, we make sure there's discounts for them, but we also make sure there's discounts for low income, we make discounts for local folks. We want to make sure people are able to survive in how they do. We do business a little differently. You know, we don't we do not do it with a corporate model, uh, like we're trying to get this amount of money. We want to make it sustainable, but we want to be, we want to be empathetic to folks. And um, because we are talking about compassion at the at the root of our work, it is about compassion, you know, uh, but we also want to be we, we don't want to just be empathetic. We want to make sure that we are efficient. We want to make sure that it's a professional event and that people people like coming, <laughs> you know. I mean, I've, it, it's it's an iconic event. I hope that it also is something that that folks all over the country and all over the world feel is replicable because it is extremely successful for a reason. I mean, well, I, I have so many more questions for you, but I feel like I need to move it to the bonus content. So stay on with me. But for we're going to conclude the main part of the interview now. And so can you just tell our listeners how they can find you online and support your efforts? Thank you. Please support and find me at omawale.org. That's O-M-O-W-A-L-E.org or Omawale Adewale on all my social media, Instagram, Twitter. And feel free to um, to follow me on on Patreon to really, you know, support the work that we're doing here with Liberation Farming, uh, Black Veg Fest work and all this liberatory, um, you know, work, you know, right on my Patreon, Omawale Adewale. Thank you. Awesome. Yeah, and we'll we'll link to it in the show notes as well. Thank you so much for joining us on our henhouse today. We're gonna keep the conversation going for our flock members, but oh Wally, it's been such a joy. I could literally talk to you for hours and maybe next Thank time it'll so be much. from that that deck where you are. <laughs> yeah. Social media has become such an important part of almost all of our lives. So please make our hen house part of that social media experience for you. You can like us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram. We try to post some news stories to help you keep up to date on what's happening in the world for animals. You can also find us online, of course, uh, on our website, ourhenhouse.org, or you can email us. If you have some concerns or questions or something you'd like us to discuss on the podcast, let us know. Info at ourhenhouse.org. Anxieties are rising. Our first story is a very depressing one. I'm sorry, but, you know, sometimes they win. And this time, at least temporarily, they won. This is from Colorado. Colorado Court Pauses Animal Treatment Ballot Initiative. This is from Beef Magazine. And we've spoken before on the podcast, You might so you might be aware of this ballot initiative that animal activists were promoting in Colorado. It had to pass some kind of a qualification procedure from the state title board before they could start gathering signatures. And it did pass it. And this requirement is seen in a lot of ballot initiative laws, and it has to be about a single subject. They don't want uh, a whole lot of different subjects being put into a ballot initiative so that uh, voters are not confused and end up, you know, not maybe voting for one, but not realizing they're also voting for another, whatever. So it passed. So they were good. So they started their signature gathering procedure. And now the 
this coalition of livestock groups appeal to the Supreme Court of Colorado, which decided that it was about more than one subject and uh, and disallowed it, and they were going to have to start from, from zero again. Livestock groups praise decision to void ballot initiative that criminalizes normal livestock procedures. I mean, it's not surprising they would be very against it because what this thing did, it told the truth, and that's really always very upsetting for them. And not only have they have they managed to eliminate it at least temporarily, they can go back to the drawing board and try to start over again in a different in a different configuration. But for the moment, it's dead. But it says here, livestock groups in the state may also join forces to offer a proactive measure to insulate the sector from this type of activity going forward. So that's scary. Uh, you know, ballot initiatives are one of the few things that have gotten us anywhere. When you ask people to actually vote on what they think should be done to animals. Turns out they've, you know, done some remarkably good things. And so they obviously want to get rid of that. And according to this, the initiative would criminalize farmers, ranchers, and veterinarians who use accepted animal husbandry practices to care for animals and changes state statutory language to define common animal care practices as cruelty to animals. Yeah, as I said, it tells the truth. And it would also, this was one of my favorite, and listen to what they have to say about this. The action would also ban slaughter for animals that have lived less than 25% of their natural lifespan. This likely would be a standard far longer than consumer and foreign markets demand. Consumer and foreign markets are the ones that are making them kill chicks when they're six weeks old. It has nothing to do with them. It's being demanded. Well, the whole industry depends on the fact that they have to kill these animals when they're babies. Pigs when they're four to six months. That's the whole that's the business model. But but it's because this is far longer than consumer and foreign markets demand. Consumers are out there demanding, no, kill them when they're babies. That We want you to do that. Believable. So the name of this coalition, which includes all, you know, all the usual suspects, the Cattlemen's Association, the Farm Bureau, the Wool Growers Association, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They call themselves Coloradans for Animal Care, more Orwellian speak. And as I said, they're looking, uh, it says here that the coalition is looking at ways to strengthen requirements to get initiatives on a ballot that allow good ideas to make it, but limit those that are bad. Oh, well, that's a good idea. Uh, let's put the Colorado Farm Bureau in, in charge. Let's just put them in charge of everything. They can decide what's a good idea and what's a bad idea. And then if it's not, a, if it's a bad idea, then people don't get to vote on it. Oh, my God. He says it woke up his organization's leadership on the need to further insulate themselves from frivolous attacks on the livestock and meat industry. This is an unbelievable statement from this guy, Fankhauser, Terry Fankhauser, who's um, from the Cattlemen's Association. This wasn't about animal welfare, but about reducing the ability to have choice. So by taking this out of the hands of the voters and not letting people vote on it, they would be re increasing the ability of people to choose. Like, the Orwellian speech just get, gets worse and worse. So their plans, now that they've uh, woken up and they're starting to plan, get this. It says the coalition is inventorying what legislative or ballot initiatives exist in other states to protect farmers, animals, as well as consumers. This could include measures to ensure that whatever ballot initiative is passed includes a higher threshold of voters or for, this is written weirdly, but a higher threshold of voters or from voters in geographically dispersed areas 
and not just urban centers. So they either want it to pass by more than 50%. Sounds like the Senate, doesn't it? Yeah, whatever happened to majority rule? Or people in the country will get bigger votes than people in the city. Well, maybe we could just do that for everything. The Republicans would all love that, wouldn't they? Oh, my God. Scary. It really is when you give think of what's going on in the world. It's scary. Voting ain't what it used to be, is it? From MeetingPlace.com, the For the Birds column by Christina Alvarado. It really takes a village. And she goes through this whole ridiculous intro about, you know, how it takes a village. But that's not to raise a child or blah, blah, blah. And how when she was a kid, she tried to be sneaky and she didn't get away with it. They, they always start with these weird intros. But this is what she's really, um, she really wants to write about. We have some sneaky groups wanting to take advantage of our industry when we aren't looking. And I hope that our industry acts more like a village to protect our best interests. This is the one time when competition needs to be thrown out the door and we must come together and work as a team. She's, of course, from the chicken industry and she's been meeting places primarily populated by the beef industry. So that may be like kind of what she's alluding to. All right. What she's really upset about or one of the things she's upset about is a, a lawsuit by LDF just very recently filed, which... Uh, is suing the USDA for, quote, allowing poultry companies to use what it contends are deceptive images on chicken and turkey products. Well, that is really, really a good idea. I'm really sick of seeing any kind of this packaging with these little chickens running around in this huge field. The other thing that she's upset about is Nevada. And yet again this week, Nevada lawmakers have approved a law that will make large egg producers adopt, quote, more humane, environmentally friendly practices i.e. they're going to have to go cage. But first, the first step is that they have to give them more space. And then by 2024, they have to be cage free. And she says, can anyone even name a large produ- egg producer in Nevada? Not really, but this legislation will apply to any shell eggs sold in Nevada. So this is like amazing news. Nevada passed this law. And what she's really upset about is that they seems to have gone under their radar. I, I don't know how. They have loads of money for uh, to keeping track of legislation. I don't, I, I don't know really if that's true. But she thinks that's so sneaky. Like they passed a law. <laughs> like how, how the hell is that sneaky? But she thinks it's sneaky. It's a sneaky way for those groups to get their way. Like get their way. Like they didn't pass the, the, the animal rights groups didn't pass the law. The legislature passed the law. Oh, my God. So she's really upset about that. And she doesn't want, want them to be allowed to be sneaky with these ballot initiatives. Uh, sneaky? All right, again, from meetingplace.com, have we reached an animal agriculture tipping point? This is from Matt Graves um, from the Meet Your Markets column. He's talking about the the hack on JBS Foods, which you probably heard about, uh, you know, which is the biggest meat company in, in the world. Their cyber system was hacked and shut down several plants on two continents, really slowed things down and killing the, the killing animal business. He points out, It almost seems like there is an historic confluence of impinging factors threatening our animal agriculture industry. What with these cyber attacks? And then this is what he combines them with. Combined with the rise of plant and cell-based non-meat proteins, the continuing concentration of companies threatening the survivability of the small regional local meat and poultry producers. They don't really care about that one. And the growing threat of climate change. So climate change and uh, plant-based meats and cell-based meats are the same as as uh, cyber attacks? <laughs> it seem like they seem very different to me. 
have all these combined to cause us to reach an animal agriculture tipping point. The tipping point he's talking about is not that they're going out of business, sorry, but what he wants is a coordinated government industry response. And then he quotes uh, the Ronald Reagan in his famous quote and um, disgusting quote, in my opinion, that the most terrifying nine words in the English language were, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. What's going on here? He just said, we need government help. Then he says, I'm not a fan of government help in businesses. However, <laughs> oh my God, however, cyber terrorism is a clear and present threat, not just to our national security, but also our industry survivability and thus warrants government involvement and help. Uh, okay. He doesn't like it, except that like the industry, the whole animal agriculture industry would not survive without enormous, enormous quantities of government help. And now he would actually like a little bit more, but he like they like to pretend that they don't like they're not uh, on government welfare. So the way to fight and overcome these threats is with a coordinated effort from a whole of government approach, including the FBI and USDA. OK, he wants the government in there. Um, but, you know, there's other things that are uh, causing problems. So he also wants to apparently bring the government in on um, on the problems caused by us. Uh, I, I don't know. <laughs> Sounds like it. But he really wants to immediately bolster their cybersecurity. He wants to be sure that however they do it, they don't jeopardize their relationship with customers and consumers by limiting meat and poultry affordable availability and desirability thus opening the door to alternatives. It all hangs together. It's all the same issue. They're victims. Victims, I tell you. And the government must ride in to help them. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you like the podcast and if you're able, you can support us by joining the flock at ourhenhouse.org slash donate for $10 a month or $100 a year, or you can make whatever donation you're comfortable with. Another great way to support us is to leave a fabulous review wherever you listen to podcasts or on Apple Podcasts, or you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Our Hen House. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. I'm Jasmine Singer. Thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan. That's me. And to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast and to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Jocelyn Martinez for her work doing research and for Eric Montgomery of Podcast Haven for his work editing. Thanks to Lori Johnston of Two Trick Pony for her graphic design services. We will be back next week with a brand new show. So don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you are a Flock member, remember to check your email or the Flock Facebook page on Tuesday for your bonus content. Thanks so much for tuning in and for changing the world for animals.